Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of having my first double guest episode for you with Leon Preto and Simone Phipps. They are two management professors and the authors of African American Management History, which was published last year. They are married. They're both from Trinidad and Tobago. They first met as undergraduate students at Claflin University, a historically black college in South Carolina. They noticed an oddity that would hold true throughout their academic careers. In the textbooks, they read all of the management gurus that informed their views of organizational culture, financing, strategy, or the purpose of a company were Caucasian. Now they're both an associate professor of management at Middle Georgia State University School of Business. Welcome to the show. Well, I just want to say thank you both for helping share this amazing story with me today here on the What's Next podcast. So I always like to start out with something I call bullish and bearish. So before we get started, uh, bullish is you are for it, bearish you are against it, and uh, don't feel the pressure because many people go, well, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) And and let me tell you, academics are the worst. You guys, it's like, nope, non-committal. Okay. (laughs) All right. So are you ready, Leon? Are you ready, Simone? Ready. Yeah. Okay. First one. I guess I'm going to have to toss it. Well, you know what? I'll start with you, Leon, and then and then I'll go to you, Simone. Okay. okay. All right. So, sure. Leon, drive-in movie theaters, bullish or bearish? Bullish. It's needed now more than ever. <laughs> I agree. How about you, Simone? I agree. Bullish. Okay, that was a softball. All right, we'll get a little more meaty now. All right, bullish or bearish, Simone? I'm going to start with you. Remote education, bullish or bearish? Bullish. It is very convenient, and as long as you know what you are doing, the professor or the instructor knows what they're doing, then it can be very effective. So bullish. All right, Leon? I used to be bearish a long time ago, but now I'm definitely bullish. So a long time ago, like four months ago? or <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. Just checking. I would say like five years ago. All right. And, you know, you guys are so, so big in academia with such amazing content. This is going to be another one on education, but, you know, fairly a fairly a softball. But, you know, the the ability for humans to learn and unlearn. Leon, bullish or bearish? Bullish. Definitely bullish, especially in this point in time. You have to be able to learn and unlearn certain things. Agree. Simone, how about you? Bullish. If you keep your mind set on something and you're not open to change, then it's you're not going to be benefiting from all the new experiences out there and all that learning can do for you. So bullish. Excellent. Well, hopefully that wasn't too painful. I always like to sort of start out with a little bit of fun. So thank you for, for doing that with us. Um, and I'm going to jump right in. You know, I'm going to sort of let our listeners know how we connected because I read this amazing story uh, on Quartz at Work by Leela McClellan, and it was called The History of Black Management Reveals an Overlooked Overlooked Form of Capitalism. I was so engrossed in that article. I read it three times. I've shared it with so many people. 
I found out you guys were the ones that a lot of the content had come from. It was really the, the, a lot of the research and the book that you had written. So I reached out on Twitter and Leon, you were kind enough to respond. So thank you so much. I'm grateful for this opportunity to have this conversation with you. Uh, but I'd love to start from the stop, from the top, you know, because the the article um, really kind of takes us through you uh, writing your book, African American Management History. It was last year. I'm sure it feels like a lifetime ago at this point, but uh, it was last year in 2019. And and maybe you can start with why you decided to write the book and how that came about, uh, and and we can go from there. Okay. Well, we decided to write the book because we realized that. Uh, there needed to be more diversity in management history. So the black figures were noticeably missing. And it wasn't that they didn't contribute, but they were just overlooked and omitted. And uh, so we wanted to make sure that uh, they were present in the management canon when you look at management history in the textbooks. And also we wanted to introduce the idea of uh, cooperative advantage as a way to succeed in business because we hear about the alternative a lot and we wanted to make sure that people understood that there's another way cooperation is important and you can succeed if you cooperate and what and how do you mean what do you mean by cooperate Simone because I know that that that's a big term you know especially in how you're using it so what do you mean by that well a cooperation has to do with working together to gain advantages or benefits via that cooperation. So the term cooperative advantage has to do with the benefits that a company can gain by using a more people-oriented approach to business that considers not just the bottom line, but the employees, the customers, and the community. This concept or this paradigm shift of cooperative advantage, it can be used as a way to reconceptualize the purpose of a firm. So it's not just about making a profit, but attaining the overall well-being of employees, customers, and the wider community. And it stems from African traditions of cooperation. And there's this one well-known tradition known as Ubuntu, which roughly translates to mean I am because we are. So this whole idea of cooperative advantage stems from those philosophies of African traditions of um, cooperation, such as Ubuntu, to show that we are all in this together and that we really should strive to find a way to reimagine capitalism to make it more compassionate to make it more um cooperative especially in the post-pandemic world because we can't go back to business as usual absolutely and you know what really struck me in this article uh and your work really was how much of the management thinking or the way in which people talk about organizations and organizational health. So let me go back to your, you know, the, this sort of cooperative, uh, cooperative advantage terms like that, even something like servant leadership, which, you know, gets used a lot now in, especially today in, in having those conversations. 
I was blown away by the history of kind of in the early decades of the 20th century uh, that black leaders and black business owners uh, have these amazing lessons that are relevant today. And, and I'd love to hear kind of your story arc of uncovering those and why do you think it hasn't been covered in, in its totality as much as I think it should be? And, and then how you reconcile sort of the way in which organizational structure happens today and opportunity from an entrepreneurship in business is changing right in front of our eyes uh, now in the 21st century. What, what, what could you share with our listeners to sort of have them have this epiphany like I did when I read the article because they don't have it in front of them? <laughs> well, I think that one of the main reasons that they were left out was because of well, what was going on in the U.S. in terms of um, racial unrest and, uh, you know, segregation and black people not really getting the opportunities that they used to and also not the respect that they used to. And so even though their work was so useful and they were doing so many great things and you had, you know, black Wall Streets and successful businesses, they were just left out and they more focused on the white figures that were contributing to management. Yeah, so definitely Jim Crow played a role, you know, but, um, but there was definitely thought leadership from some of these black business pioneers that were listed in my book. And um, one of the main figures in the book was Charles Clinton Spaulding. You know, he's considered the father of African-American management today. So thankfully, he's now listed in various textbooks and his contributions are still very relevant in contemporary times. So modern day entrepreneurs, whether you're black or white or Latino, um, regardless of ethnicity, could learn a lot about um, about him and his contributions and his writings. So it's still very much um, relevant in contemporary times. So he faced a lot of challenges as a black man running a business in the early 20th century. But he found a way to embody this philosophy of cooperation to really service his employees, to really serve his employees, his customers, and his wider community. And other Black business pioneers also really embodied those traditions and served their communities as well. And, well, Leon mentioned Sissy Spaulding. I would like to mention one of the women uh, from that era, and that would be Magdalena Walker. And we really hope that she will be recognized as the mother of African-American management because she contributed a lot in terms of the initiatives that she started and were part of. For example, she chartered and became president of the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. And a bank in the Black community was really important because it didn't only allow them to have savings, but it also allowed them to be able to create businesses and to have more home ownership. She also was instrumental in starting a department store called the Emporium, so that provided employment 
for a lot of the black women who usually had to be domestics or that do that kind of job at that time. And it also gave access to the black community to goods at a lower price. Uh, so we also want to make sure that uh, she and others get included in the canon and people know about her and her philosophies and how she contributed. Well, it, just to put this in context for those listening, this is in 1903. <laughs> so a minute ago, right? She had her own business. She employed people. She invested in the community, you know, and in my uh, lack of understanding of history, Black history and management specifically, um, I was really only aware of C.J. Walker. I mean, that she was, and I only knew her kind of not very much, you know, the, a few things. So she's another one mm -hmm. uh, that I think did amazing things at that time. Oh, yes, definitely. Madam C.J. Walker um, deserves all of the kudos that she currently receives. But um, believe it or not, the first self-made Black woman millionaire in the United States was Annie Turnbull Malone. She actually was the one who gave Madam C.J. Walker her start in the beauty industry. And um, history has somehow forgotten the contributions of Annie Turnbull Malone. So there are many, um, I hate to use the term hidden figures, but I guess for the lack of a better <laughs> term, there are many hidden figures of Black business that contributed in terms of their business practices and their thought leadership. Yeah, and I almost feel like, and, and I'm going to make a really bad correlation, so correct me if I'm way off on this, but when I read about uh, Annie uh, Turnbull Malone, I felt like Mary Kay a little bit, like, like a lot of things that they did some 50 years before her, mm -hmm. then, you know, showed itself for, especially in the beauty industry, being very focused on a particular segment of the market, who the consumer was, how they wanted to be sold to, relationships, door-to-door -door communities. Am I am I pulling those two examples together correctly? Well, there, there are definitely some similarities because Mary Kay was pretty frustrated about uh, how male-oriented business was and uh, she wanted to give more opportunities to women. And uh, so it was the same for Annie Turnbull Malone. And Turnbull Malone actually created thousands of jobs. It was about 75,000 jobs, not just nationally in different cities around the U.S., but internationally. So she had agents in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in Canada, in the Philippines. Uh, so she really had a wide-reaching impact in terms of the employment that she created. Yeah, it was just fascinating. Like I said, you know, when I read this article, I was like, how, how do I not know these names? I, I knew one of almost all of those that were mentioned. So, of course, I had to buy, <laughs> buy your book so that I could go, I want to know, you know, know more. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I, you know, I like to think I know sort of sources of thinking, you know, even something like servant leadership as, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where that came from and what that was founded in. So, so it was really, really enlightening for me. And the other thing I was not very familiar with uh, was Black Wall Street. And would one of you like to sort of attempt to um, describe what that was and why it was called that and, and, and what was the genesis of it? I think it's just fascinating. Well, in the United States, there are a number of Black Wall Streets, and it was a term 
attributed to Booker T. Washington, you know, who was a pioneering educator and spokesperson within the African-American community. And some of the very well-known Wall Street, Black Wall Streets, was the one in Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that one was actually destroyed by a black um, by a white mob um, in the early 20th century. Um, I want to believe it's 1921. And that was a very successful Black Wall Street. And then there's another one that was also well known. Um, it was in Durham, North Carolina. And people like Charles Clinton Spaulding of the North Carolina Mutual, his fellow co-founder John Merrick of the North Carolina Mutual, um, they were founders of that um, company, which was at one time the largest African-American um, company in the United States. So Greenwood in Tulsa and also Durham, North Carolina were very vibrant um, communities in terms of um, well, business communities as well. And um, Chicago also had a Black Wall Street, Atlanta as well. Harlem, New York also had a Black Wall Street. You know, so there were many instances of African-Americans showing agency and creating businesses and which resulted in lots of jobs being created for um, Black citizens in the United States. And they were vibrant communities, but some faced a lot of oppression due to resentment from um, some members of the white community at the time. But they found a way to persist. They always found a way to rebuild. And that resilience is something that is ad admirable about the African-American business community um, of yesteryear. Yeah, and, and I think even the way you just described it, you know, until you just said there was like six or seven, like I thought there was two, you know? So it's just a matter of uncovering all this rich history that, um, you know, I didn't learn about uh, in textbooks, which leads me, maybe Simone, you want to tackle this one, is that I know that a lot of your work has led to um, some authors updating their books to include this history from a educational standpoint. And, and what, has, what has that journey been like? Well, it, we found that it was very important to include these figures in the management canon because you're right, they were really missing from the textbooks. You didn't hear about them because they weren't taught in history and they're also not taught in management history. And so we've had some success with getting some of the textbooks to update the information. For example, management by... Chuck Williams is one of the textbooks that now includes C.C. Spaulding. And we do hope that in the future, other figures will also be included in the textbook. Go ahead, Leanne. Oh, yes. You know, so there are definitely opportunities for other textbook publishers to, you know, highlight some of these leading business figures, you know, and, and we, we're not just advocating for them to be included just because they're African-American, but the fact that they're actually contributors to thought leadership and their insights is remarkably, it's, it's very um, relevant to contemporary times. And it could also inspire a lot of 
young entrepreneurs, African-Americans, and other ethnic minorities that they too can succeed despite the great challenges that they may face. Because some of these um, pioneers that we highlight in our, in our book, they face a lot of um, racial prejudice, but they always found a way to rise up against all of the challenges they faced and make and they made a meaningful contribution to the United States. And but it's not only uh, it's not only uh, books in the U.S. There was one in uh, from Victoria University of Wellington as well, um, and uh, which is in New Zealand that they you know did a sweep, found your research, and added into their book as well. So it's it's not just this is not just a U.S. phenomenon or situation, right? This is a this is a global kind of lack of coverage on these amazing. Uh, people who laid the foundation for for so many uh, from a business perspective. Definitely. So um, so Todd Bridgman and Stephen Cummins, I have to give them a shout out. So they work at Victoria University of Wellington. So they have been very gracious in terms of spreading the knowledge um, uncovered by Simone and myself. And they even teaching their students all the way in New Zealand about some of these African-American business pioneers so they're also doing some really interesting work as it relates to critical management studies and to um, provide voices and historical narratives that were not really included in the textbooks. Well, I know both of you are from Trinidad, and now uh, I th- hope you both reside in the U.S., um, and when you began this journey of sort of tracing the history of this, you know, this rich history of uh, black management thinking, what was the most surprising to you when you began this journey? Well, it was surprising to me how, not just that how much the black figures contributed, but I think what was most surprising was how much was left out. And uh, so I was uh, very happy when we started on the journey to discover these figures and what they contributed, that it wasn't just, you know, a little bit of information here and there, but there were some well thought out principles and philosophies, really thought leadership, you can say, for that time. And uh, in terms of practice, you know, they were using uh, strategies uh, that uh, were really, you can say were novel at that time and that can really be influential today in contemporary times and that people can learn from now as well. And so that is what was so striking that we thought, you know, we have to make sure these people are known, but not just because what they contributed, but we need to make sure that people today can see that they can learn from the past and apply it to contemporary times. Absolutely. And I think what's what's interesting is, and what I love about, so I, I wrote a book in 2018, well, it published in 2018. And, you know, it was called Growth IQ, and everyone was like looking for this, you know, novel, new sort of thinking. Oh, let me say that differently. I think they thought it was going to be, <laughs> let me say it that way, new novel thinking. But what I did was I took management thinking uh, for 
probably the last 50 or 60 years. You can go a whole lot back further than that. But but I was, you know, sort of in the last hundred, let's call it a hundred. Um, and it was, how could I modernize some of these core philosophical management and growth thinking with the new lens of today, which is, you know, it's digital, it's mobile, it's cloud, it's, you know, it's, it, it's artificial intelligence, big data. I mean, I could rattle them all off, right? But have the philosophies really changed or is it now the mechanisms, right? Or the vehicles by which we now do those things, I feel has changed. And so when I have conversations with people about, you know, they, they talk to me about something, you know, let's call it uh, in the marketing field of management, right? And they'll be like, we're really trying to figure this has really come at us. And, and I'll go, do you, do you know when that was actually developed? And they'll be like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, you know, it's the late 1800s, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. right? Like. And they and then they go no and I go yeah like this is nothing new it's been reskinned or it's you know repositioned and so you know what I feel like after I that's how I felt after I read the article that you guys wrote and then subsequently what I've I've been able to read in your book is I feel like that's almost what happened right it was this modernization of things that were already happening from an entrepreneurship and a business and a management and a leadership and community and all those things. It was kind of a, a modern twist on, okay, how do we make that work for today's times? I don't know. D- does that make sense? It does make sense, especially uh, as you mentioned that modernization, just thinking about the idea of cooperative advantage. And we mentioned Ubuntu, which is that traditional philosophy as I of I am because we are. Ubuntu really has three tenets, which are spirituality, consensus building, and dialogue. And we always hear about, we're familiar with consensus building, you know, involving people and discussing things, making sure people have voice. But spirituality is something a lot of times people think is just about religion, which it really isn't just about religion. It is more about considering the well-being of employees and customers and community. So in terms of employees, something like meaningful work and making sure employees know they're making a difference, that they have a purpose, making sure that you show that you care about employees and you want to build a sense of community and positive culture. All of that is embodied in spirituality in terms of taking care of customers, addressing the needs of customers and the community at large. So something like workplace spirituality, you can re-envision it. You know, of yesteryear, it existed back then, but today you can reconceptualize it and add some things to it as well. Yeah, well said. And and that's what I found fascinating, right, in, in what I learned from that piece and what I've learned from you both, uh, is everything you just said. And it, it's also, you know, if I, as I'm sure you guys have as well, and you mentioned it, uh, Leon, is, you know, if it's the um, Latin American community, the Black community, um, you know, it could be from Asia, it could be from the Pacific Rim, whatever it might be. It's kind of culturally putting that lens on, on what works in your own culture from a management perspective, right? Or from a uh, engagement perspective. Is is that does that sound right? Oh, yes, definitely. And also, there are um, various um, histories of management that is contextualized to various communities. But of course, what we are more familiar with are those that came um, from Europe and North America, you know, so India, 
they have their own histories of management and hopefully um some scholars are going back to the archives to try to uncover the contributions of companies such as tata in india and also in the continent of africa um there are various philosophies um on the continent and other parts of the world as well you know so they have their own systems and traditions that could also contribute to making capitalism a more compassionate economic system great words compassionate love that that's a, that's a good one well you know we're we're almost out of time i could talk to you guys for hours because this has just been such a pleasure for me um but if you were to leave our listeners with maybe a couple of things that you could give them to maybe ponder or to read or uh, to think about after they listen to this uh, wonderful podcast with the two of you, what would it be? I'll start with you, Simone. Okay. I would say really there are three main takeaways we want people to get from this book. The first is that we need to reimagine capitalism and the purpose of a firm, you know, so it's not just about making money and profits and the bottom line. The second is that uh, we really want to advocate for an increased focus on cooperative advantage versus the alternative, because we need to think about how everyone can benefit, you know, employees, customers, community. And third, we want people to remember that you can link spirituality to the cooperation. The spirituality, the cooperation and spirituality can go hand in hand. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Well, I just have one thing to say, Jess. Um, we can also focus on well-being as well as profit. And I'll just leave it as that. Yeah, I, I happen to work for Salesforce, uh, as you both know, and our CEO wrote a book called Trailblazer, and it's about purpose over profit and business being the greatest platform for change and sort of leaving our communities and our employees and, you know, better off for us being here. And uh, I think you both uh, exemplify that concept. So again, thank you so much for your time and your insights. And what's the best way for people to continue to follow your amazing work? Well, for me, um, um, follow me on Twitter, Leon C. Prieto, and um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Feel free to reach out to me. And our book is listed on Amazon, so you can just find it. Um, type in my name, Leon Prieto, and Simone. And, and I am also on LinkedIn, Simone Phipps, and uh, my handle on Twitter is Dr. Simone Phipps. Well, you know, I just want to say thank you both for, for working so hard to educate people like me who had no idea. I just thank you for the effort and thank you for spending time with us here today on the What's Next podcast and good luck with everything that you're doing. And please, please let us know how we can continue to support your work. So thank you both, Leon and Simone, for joining me today. Thank much, you very much for having us. Much appreciated. Thank you. What an amazing podcast. I could have talked to Leon and Simone for hours, but what I loved most, and I'm just gonna end with this, is the African philosophy of Ubuntu. I am because we are. Have a great rest of your day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the What's Next podcast. Please share with your friends, leave some feedback, subscribe, but more than anything, take care of yourself and your loved ones. Have a great day.